you ever face an extreme situation that called for extreme courage? I don't know about you, but courage is one of my favorite words in our English language because courage means that something within us rises up to do what we should do or what we can do. And maybe you've been in a situation and it could, maybe perhaps it was a rescue situation and you had to do something as dramatic as lift a car off someone who was trapped. Or I know many of you at New Spring are in, um, you're a first responder or you're a firefighter or you're in um, law enforcement and perhaps on a daily basis, your job calls for you to meet extreme situations with extreme courage. Many of you are in the medical health field and, and perhaps indeed your, your lifestyle would call for that. Or it just could be that it's not a physical situation, it's an emotional, mental situation. So perhaps your life puts you in situations where in your family you have an extreme situation. You have to be extremely courageous to do the right thing. But I love that, and that's what this whole series is about. It's about people in extreme situations who meet those situations with extreme courage. I love history, so when I think about extreme situations, extreme courage, uh, one of the first images that comes to my mind is um, uh, the Normandy invasion from World War II. Uh, the, the soldiers, the Marines, who hit the beaches at Normandy and went right into the teeth of enemy fire, left the amphibious craft, went right onto the beach, even though they were they were getting shot at in their face. And, and I think about how they, how they took Normandy and how they changed uh, the war in Europe. Or uh, for in, in more recent terms, I think about 9-11. You know, when many people reasonably so were rushing out of the buildings, um, there were first responders, firefighters, and law enforcement who were rushing into the building. And many of them gave their lives. And so I think about meeting extreme situations with extreme courage. I think about those who did that on 9-11. One of my favorite stories and I don't know why I love this story so much, but I love the story of pilot Chelsea Sullenberger who um, landed the crippled Airbus A320 full of 150 passengers on the Hudson River. Uh, I just think that had to be extreme courage. I mean, he must have had ice water in his veins to land a plane, a jet plane with no power on a river and save everybody's life. I just love that story. Extreme situations met with extreme courage. Um, you know, the thing about that is, I think we live in a culture today that calls for that. I, I don't know if you've ever applied for a job only to go there and find out there were no openings, but can I tell you that you don't have to worry about that. If you want to be a living legend, you don't have to worry because there are many, many openings for living legends. See, these are the days, these are the days of celebrity. And there's a big difference between a celebrity and a legend. A celebrity has what Salvador Dali called their 15 minutes of fame. They have a moment in the sun or a day in the sun. But legends are people who do things that really matter. And because they do legendary things that matter, we keep talking about them. That's why I just talked a few moments ago about the soldiers who stormed the beach at Normandy. Well, most of them are gone. And by the way, for all of us who are baby boomers and younger, don't we miss that great generation that faced the Depression and World War II with such great courage? I'm not really sure America will ever be the same again after we lost them. But we still talk about them. Because, see, they did legendary things. They, the, the guys who stormed the beaches at Normandy, they, they, they weren't celebrities. Most of us don't know many of their names. But to us, they're legend because of what they did. And we don't know the names of the firefighters and the police officers who went into the buildings in 9-11. You may know some of their names, but I don't know very many of the names. They weren't celebrities, they were legends. And so if you, if you wanna be a living legend, I have good news for you today. There are lots of job openings for living legends because as I said, we live in the, you know, and, and let me ask you a question. Was there ever a big, bigger, bigger oxymoron than reality TV? That, that has gotta be the 
biggest oxymoron of all time. Self-contradictory term, reality TV. <laughs> and, and I think within that, within that craze that we've had the last decade and a half or so, there's the idea, well, anybody can become a celebrity. But honestly, I, I don't have any interest in being a celebrity. But I, I would love to be legendary. I would love for my life to make so much difference that people kept talking about what happened in my life even after I'm gone. Well, as I said, there are lots of openings for people who want to be legends because these are the days of, of conformity. These are the days of political correctness. Uh, these are the days of comfortable living. In fact, if I were to imagine a moniker for 21st century Americans, I would imagine a bobblehead doll. You guys know what bobblehead dolls are? I've got one in my office. You know what it is. You just sort of thunk its head and it just nods its, it nods its head. And, and that's, how, that's how I see Americans today. You know, uh, entertainment world just kind of pops us on the head. You know, if you, listen, if you go to watch a movie, if you watch something on television, you're getting preached a sermon. You're getting preached about that. You're getting preached to about values, sexual values. Values about money. So you're hearing a message, and what I see today, it seems to me like sort of the entertainment world just thumps us on the head, and we just not, oh yeah, go right along with that, you know, or, or cable news, not hitting, oh yeah, go right along with that, talk ready, oh yeah, go right along with that, and so that's how I see Americans today, and that's why there's such an opening for legendary living. And here's the thing: in order to be a living legend, you may not need to rush into a burning building or storm a beach under gunfire. You may not even have to land a crippled airliner on a river. In order for you to be a living legend, you may have to do something so simple as to speak up for what's not popular. Could you do that? I mean, could you articulate within a group of people that all pretty much hold one point of view? Could you articulate a different point of view and, and say that you hold that view? Could you do that? See, I don't think the average American can. I don't think we can. We're so, we're so in love with being popular with being, being, being part of the conformity, but I think we have a real hard time for standing up for what we believe. So you, you might, just, just stand, speaking up for what's not popular might make you a living legend. To, to say the truth when it could cost you a relationship or a job, that may be all it takes for you to be a legend. Or to side with God in a culture that's becoming more and more godless, or even just to sacrifice personal comfort in order to change the world. So the good news for this whole series is there's all kinds of openings for people to be living legends. I want to invite you on a journey for the next five weeks to explore the lives of five individuals, four guys and one super extraordinary woman. And we're going to look at these people and we're going to see how they changed the world. Today's talk is called Outliers. I think it's a real good place for us to start. Anybody here ever read Malcolm Gladwell's work? Uh, if you're into business or leadership, chances are you read books of that paradigm. You've come across Malcolm uh, Gladwell's books. Uh, his seminal book was called Tipping Point, and he, he talked about how major uh, trends happen in business and culture. And then he wrote Blink, and then he wrote my favorite book, which is called Outliers. And in Malcolm Gladwell's book, he explored the lives of individuals and groups whose lives were so different that they lay outside the trend lines. In fact, let me just give you a dictionary definition of outlier. This is the one most salient probably to our talk today. An outlier is a person whose abilities, achievements lie outside the range of statistical probability. In other words, here is someone whose life is so different that it's not what you expect. It's not what is probable. In theory, uh, the dictionary definition goes on, in theory, an outlier is something that is so unlikely that it's thought to be unrepresentative of the rest of the sample. I really enjoyed Malcolm Gladwell's book. And then I got a hold of Sean Aker's book called The Happiness Advantage. Sean Aker, the Harvard professor 
who, and by the way, that is a great book. And if you don't have a chance to read the book, I still would challenge you to watch his TED Talk. His TED Talk is the absolute best right after Billy Graham's. So if you haven't seen this, it's worth watching because he, he will explain what I'm about to say in much more sophistication and better detail and with a lot more humor. Well, what Sean Hanker talks about is he talks about when we see, when we see a graph and we see a trend line, he said, after all, a trend line is all you need to get published. He said, uh, you see a trend line, which is normal behavior, and then you see that red dot outside the trend line. He said, it's the nature of science to rule that out because it messes up the data. But he said, in areas of personal performance and potential, he said, why is it that we rule out those red dots above the trend line? Why don't we study those red dots? In other words, people who achieve more, people who do more, people who create more, yeah, they're not down there in the trend line, they're up here as a red dot, but why rule them out as an outlier? Why not study their lives? Well, I love both of those books, but it got me thinking. What about people whose faith journey is outside the trend line? You know what breaks my heart today? When Christians are studied, when Christians are studied in regard to their attitudes about sexuality or money, or when they're, they're studied into their um, views of ethics, do you realize that statistically there's not a whole lot of difference between what Christians think and people who are non-Christian? We're pretty, pretty much in that same trend line. And, and that's one of the reasons today I, why I bring this message, because I, I think we need outliers today. I think that in this age of conformity, in this age of going along, in this age of bobbleheaded dolls, we need people, if they truly are God followers, we need people, we need young people who will say, hey, I, I, I am willing to be an outlier. I am willing to be outside the trend line. And that's, again, what this series is all about. Well, this week we get introduced, and, and honestly... The first week of series is always a challenge because he'd introduce a series and plus bring you a message. I'm going to do my best to do that today. We're going to get introduced next week. You're going to meet a dynamic trio. And guys, whatever you have to do to be here week three, you need to be here week three. Um, I've been, this, is, this series has been on my mind for about a year and a half. In fact, I had planned for this series to be the January series. But I just didn't feel permission to bring it until now. But there was one message in this series that I just felt so much pressure to bring, I brought it early. I'm going to tell you this. I preached at mega churches this year. I preached at International Conference for Church Leaders. The two greatest services I've been part of this year were at church camps at New Spring. One was our middle school camp in Oklahoma, and the other was our high school camp in Kansas City. I was so pumped about this message. I brought it to your junior hires, and I brought it to your high schoolers. I promise you, I spoke for over an hour to our middle schoolers, and they never left me. I think they would have been there for two hours if I'd been preaching two hours. I did the same thing. I spoke for over an hour to the high schoolers, and it lit them up. And so I cannot wait. I think you should catch up with where your middle schoolers and your high schoolers are, because in this message, I talk about one woman who faced off the whole world and saved a nation. So whatever you have to do to get here for week three, you're going to want to be here. If you could only attend one service at New Spring, should be Christmas Eve. But right after that, it should be this, this service right here. Okay, so that's coming week three. Week four tells us today's habit can make you tomorrow's legend. And week five asks the question, do you want to be at the party or do you want to leave the party out? So we have got some cool stuff coming up in this series. I want to take you now, if you have your Bibles, if you have a Bible app, I want to take you now to the book of Daniel chapter 1 because we're going to start talking about legendary living before I get there. Somebody could say, well, Mark, um, you caught me at a really bad time. Uh, it's really, really not a good time to talk to me about legendary living because this is everything I can do just hang on. I don't even know how I got to church today. 
I'm going through so much trouble right now. I'm hanging by my fingernails. I need you to talk about survival today. I don't need you to talk about legendary living. I love you. I love you so much, I'm going to tell you the truth. You misunderstand. Let me ask you this. The stories that you know are legendary, how many of them go something like this? Um, I laid all afternoon on the deck of my $10 million yacht drinking banana daiquiris. I had a real nice afternoon. I mean, who goes to see a movie with that as a plot line? I mean, who tells that story to their grandkids? Uh, see, there's no legend there. See, legendary stories are stories about people in trouble and somebody does something heroic. So if you're in trouble today, I just want you to know you're at the employment office and you're facing a sign that says, help wanted for living legends. Because see, living legends begin in a situation where there's trouble and difficulty and then somebody does something heroic. Well, if you have the book of Daniel open or if you're close to it, you need to know two things about the book of Daniel. Number one, the book of Daniel is one of the most important books in your Bible. This is just my opinion. I think Daniel's the most important book in the Old Testament. It might be a coin flip right in between Daniel and Genesis. Personally, with me, I think Daniel's most important book in your Old Testament, probably one of the most important books in your Bible. I'll tell you why. Because not only are all those cool stories in there in the book of Daniel, Daniel is given, he is chosen to give some extraordinary prophecies. In fact, there is no book of prophecy in the Bible, in my point of view, like Daniel. You can say, Mark, I thought you would have said that about Revelation. Here's why I say Daniel. You cannot understand the book of Revelation without the book of Daniel. You remember when you were young, many of you, and the teacher gave a test, and the teacher had a key with all the answers on the test? Daniel is like the key that works, that opens up the book of Revelation. Here's the thing. Daniel is so full of prophecy. Daniel will tell us, by the grace of God, about world powers, world empires from his time all the way to future times that you and I haven't experienced yet. Daniel, Daniel will begin with the Babylonian Empire, go to the Greco, the, the, he will go to the uh, Medo-Persian Empire, then the Greek Empire, and the Roman Empire, and then he'll talk about a future empire in the last days. Daniel is the one who tells us all about the Antichrist, tells us more about the Antichrist perhaps than any other author. Tells us about the last day's world power. He tells us about a one world government. He tells about Jesus coming. Tells about Jesus dying and appearing to accomplish nothing and a long gap of time before the last seven years of world history before Jesus comes, known as the tribulation period. Daniel tells us about all those things. In fact, well, let me just say this. Not only is Daniel one of the most important books of the Bible, but Daniel's one of the most hated books of the Bible. And, and, and I'll, I'll just briefly explain what I mean by that. As you know, there are skeptics out there who constantly want to disprove the Bible. And among those skeptics, believe it or not, a lot of them are at seminaries. Do you know what a seminary is? You say, Mark, it sounds like cemetery. A whole lot of like, a whole lot of like in a lot of cases. <laughs> not all of them. Seminaries are where ministers are trained. Do you know that some of the most skeptical people are people who are professors in seminaries, especially in mainstream denominational seminaries? In the 20th century, Almost no mainstream seminary taught that Daniel was an authentic book. Most, most seminaries taught that Daniel was a spurious book. I'll tell you why. Because the prophecies in Daniel are so pristine, so minute, so detailed, that the skeptics thought there was no way in the world that a prophet could foretell such things. And so they taught that there must be a, and this is again more than you want to know, there must have been a proto-Daniel. In other words, somebody who wrote like say 150 BC during the time of Josephus, he wrote history and wrote it as though he were writing prophecy because after all, it's just too perfect to be prophecy. If you don't believe in the supernatural, you gotta come up with screwy stuff like that. 
well, what I love about this, and I'll talk to you about it someday, is they put themselves out on a limb, and by the middle, two-thirds into the 20th century, the archaeologists came and sawed them off. And so, Daniel is a very hated book because its prophecies are just so amazing. But for you and me, we're going to explore it. At least we're going to explore some of the stories. Now, if you'll grant me just a moment of time, a little historical background. I know that some of you, this is your first time to be here. Others of you, you just came off a series with us uh, called Build It. And in Build It, we looked at the life of Nehemiah. And you know that Nehemiah was part of the history of the Jewish captivity, when the Jews went into captivity. But Nehemiah occurs at the end of it. And as we talked about, Nehemiah was... He was in captivity during the time the Persians were in charge. And the Persians are very genteel. The Persians, in fact, have been saying to the Jewish people, you can go home, you can go home now. We'll actually build your temple for you. We'll fund the rebuilding of your walls. So that's where Nehemiah was. He was at the end of the captivity. In Daniel chapter 1, we go back 150 years to the beginning of the captivity, to the Babylonians. And here's what you need to know before we get into this. The Babylonians had the opposite idea of the Persians. Persians said, you can go home. Babylonians said, you got to come to Babylon. And their idea was to bring, pe- bring conquered peoples away from their land, reposition them in Babylon. But the, but the Babylonians had an issue that they were concerned about. And I think you can, you can understand this if you put yourself in their place. They were concerned that if they brought conquered peoples into their land, and those people kept their own culture, their own language, their own way of thinking, that they could proliferate and someday be trouble to the Babylonians. So aside from the spiritual component here, just looking at it from a purely intelligence standpoint, I guess you could say the Babylonians had an interesting idea. The Babylonians thought when they conquered a nation, they would take the best and brightest of the young people and actually bring them in, put them among Babylonian aristocracy and treat them as such. Let them live in the palace. Let them eat the same food the king ate, drink the same wine the king drank. Put them in the university, give them a university, world-class university education, train them to be Babylonian aristocracy, and then turn them back to their people to become missionaries, so to speak, for the Babylonian way of life. Like say, just take the God part out of it. It's probably a pretty smart idea. But with that in mind, you're now ready to read with me Daniel chapter 1, verse 5, and to meet our first four legends. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. That means they ate the very same food that the most powerful man in the world was eating. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among these were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Lucky ones, right? I mean, a lot of Jews were coming in shackles. These boys were going to live the life of the rich and famous in the palace. How many of you discover when you get stuff like this, oftentimes there are strings attached? And the strings attached were they were going to be brought into the Babylonian culture. But the problem was these four young men worshipped the God of of Judah. They worshipped Jehovah God. The Babylonians had a whole panoply of gods. I'm not sure they really believed in any of them, but they had had a whole lot of idol gods. And so I think you can put two and two together and figure out there's going to be a head-on collision pretty soon. And the problem for Daniel and these three guys is... They're going to be right in the palace. They're going to be right there where the king is. And so when they reach loggerheads, it's going to be a public thing. Well, it starts pretty quick. Daniel chapter 1, verse 7. The chief of staff renamed them. I don't know whose idea it was, but they started looking at these four Jewish guys. And they all had names that were names of Jehovah God. And they said, we can't keep this. You guys are here in Babylon now. We're going to have to give you new names. And so they changed their names. Daniel, which his name means God is my judge. 
He was called Belteshazzar, which means Bel, protect the king. Hananiah, which means God's gift of grace. If your name is John or the feminine form of John or Juan, then you need to know that this is the Hebrew form of your name, God's gracious gift, God's gift. I don't have time to tell a story, but when you've pastored as long as I have, you know lots of stories about, about the church. <laughs> I, I, it was probably 25 years ago here, I was preaching on this very thing about how that Shadrach's real name was Hananiah, God's gift. And when a young couple in our church was pregnant, and the wife gave birth to a premature baby, the most premature baby I've ever seen in my career that lived. But the doctors had said, hey, there's no chance for this little boy. His heart's not fully developed maybe a few hours, and then you're going to lose him. But I just preached that message, and I still remember the dad coming to my house late that night, and he said, you know, just as an act of faith, we've decided to name this boy Hananiah, God's gracious gift. He said, actually, we're calling him Hananiah Isaiah. How would you like to have that for a name? Hananiah Isaiah, God's gracious gift of salvation. And, uh, but I will tell you this. He had to have a, n- a number of surgeries, but that boy lived. And a few years ago, I saw him. He's like six foot three, big strapping kid. I think God up in heaven said, I gotta let that kid live I'm with a name like Cananiah Isaac. Okay, where was I? Okay. Hananiah, <laughs> his name means God's gracious gift. His name was changed to Shadrach, command of Aku, the moon god. Wait, what a downgrade. Mishael, <laughs> whose name means who is like the Lord, his name was changed to Meshach, who is what Aku is. And Azariah, whose name means the Lord is my helper, was changed to Abednego, which means the servant of Nego, the god of vegetation. <laughs> they basically said, you got to change your names, and then these are your names. Now, I don't know if you've learned already, but I love the book of Daniel. I love its stories. I love its prophecies. Sometimes I just love words in the book of Daniel, and I love the first word of verse 8. But... Sometimes that's a very powerful word. They changed their names, but Daniel was determined not to defile himself by eating the food and wine given to them by the king. He asked the chief of staff for permission not to eat these unacceptable foods. Now, now listen. This is kind of peculiar when you think about it. I mean, they've been carried away captive. They've been told they're going to have to live a whole new lifestyle. They're going to have to learn the language and the culture of the Babylonians, go to the university, and then work for the king for the rest of their lives. Why would Daniel throw such a fit about not eating a steak and drinking a glass of wine? I mean, is he a vegan? Is he just does not into drink? What, what, what is the deal there? No, here's the thing. Got to realize this. Daniel and his people were in Babylon because they worshiped idols. The steaks and the wine had been dedicated to idols. Eating the food was an act of worship to the idols. And Daniel was saying, we can't do that. Now, guys, here's the first in this brief message I'm bringing today, and I'm just kind of really giving you an introduction to legendary living. The first thing that legendary people know is where the line is drawn. Let me ask you a question. Do you have a line? And and the reason I ask this question, I don't think most Americans do. Is there a line in your life that you won't cross? Are there things that you will not do no matter what? If it costs your life, you wouldn't do it. Are there things in your life that are wrong and you know they're wrong and you refuse to do them? Are there things that you will do no matter what the cost? Do you know where the line is drawn? One thing I love about Daniel is that Daniel knew where that line was drawn. And ladies and gentlemen, here is where the line is. The line is squarely between what you can't change and what you can change. There are a whole lot of things Daniel didn't like but couldn't change. Can I say that one more time? A whole lot of things Daniel didn't like 
but he couldn't change. He didn't like the fact that his people were in captivity, couldn't change it. He didn't necessarily like the fact the Babylonians took them captive, couldn't change it. Necessarily didn't like the idea, perhaps, that he had been carried away captive and placed in the palace to be a missionary for Babylonian culture, but he couldn't change it. He couldn't change where he was going to go to university. He couldn't change the language they were going to make him speak. He couldn't even change it when they changed his name. You know, somebody could say, well, Mark, and the more, the more forward among us might say, Daniel could have crossed his arms and said, how dare you call me that name? But you know what would have happened to him? He would have been crushed like a bug on a windshield. And here's what you should know. Oh, this is a sermon within itself. Is there anybody here who's in a situation that you wouldn't choose to be in? You know, here's the thing about that. Daniel was in such a situation. The Babylonians brought him there so Babylon could influence Daniel. But what they didn't understand was that God had brought Daniel there so Daniel could influence Babylon. And if you study the life of Daniel, which we're going to study some pieces of, if you study the life of Daniel, you will discover that Daniel had far more influence on Babylon than Babylon ever began to have on Daniel. Daniel was going to influence Babylon for the next 70 years. He was going to influence a series of kings. I would think Daniel had perhaps more influence on the Babylonians than any other single individual. And on top of that, Daniel would even outlive the Babylonians and go into the Persian regime. I'm convinced that it was Daniel who went to Cyrus and said, look, sir, here's your name in the Bible. You're supposed to help us rebuild the temple. And Cyrus rebuilt the temple. I think that's the reason why the Persian kings that we read about in Nehemiah told the Jewish people, you can go home. They did it because of Daniel's influence. I am convinced that the reason that the wise men came to Jesus' birth when he was born is because Daniel had left them the influence of Numbers 24, 17, and they knew that when they saw a star, it had to do with the coming of the Messiah. I promise you, Daniel had way more influence on Babylon than Babylon ever began to have on Daniel. And if he... If he if, if Daniel chooses a hill to die on in the wrong place, if he stands on the wrong line, he lost his life and he never would have been there to, be, to have the influence. But Daniel knew where the line was. It was right in between what he couldn't control and what he could control. Again, Daniel couldn't choose where he was. He couldn't choose what the Babylonians intended to do. He couldn't choose what they called him. He couldn't, he couldn't change what they called him. But when it came to putting something inside his body, Daniel drew a line and he said, I know where the line is. I think some of you may know where I'm going with this series. In our world today, especially in America, and I know that many of you are watching online from other countries, but in America today, we are becoming far more godless as a, as a country. And not just godless. We live in a country that is becoming more and more anti-God and specifically anti-Christ every day. Now, that's a fact. It has nothing to do with the fact that I'm a religious person, and although I wouldn't consider myself such. But that's just a fact. We're becoming more anti-God and anti-Christ. I mean, for instance, a whole lot of prophecy in the book of Daniel is about a last day's power where you have a single leader who leads the world in his name, we know him as the Antichrist. Now, many of us have watched movies and we have this idea that he's got horns and fangs, but really, he's just a world leader. And what's his position? Antichrist. Like John said in John's epistle, first epistle, he said the spirit of Antichrist is already in the world. Hey, I deal with that. I get asked sometimes to lead public prayers. I get asked the question, do you pray non-sectarian prayers? Hey, I know what that means. I was born at night, but not last night. That means, are you going to pray in Jesus' name? 
And I hope you don't think your pastor is unkind or ungracious because I try to be very kind and very gracious. But I will tell you this. Anybody who calls me and says, do you pray a non-sectarian prayer? I let them know Jesus goes with me everywhere I go. I can't leave him home. You know? And, and I'm, not trying, I'm not trying to be unkind, ungracious, and, and I'm not trying to offend anybody. By the way, is it just me or do people have more tender sensibilities today than ever? I mean, I'm not offended by someone expressing their faith if it's different from mine. Where do we... This is just one of hundreds, if not thousands, of stories that I've just gotten used to reading. You know, Arkansas State, their football team, they lost a couple of people in their program. They lost a player, they lost a staffer. To, who died. And so they, they wanted to memorialize both these individuals. And so in the first game of the season, they, they decided they would wear a cross on the back of their helmet with the initials of the player and the staffer. You know what the legal department of the university said? They couldn't do that. It was unconstitutional. And you know, here's what the legal suggestion was. Cut the top of the cross off and cut the bottom of the cross off so it will look like a plus sign. As one writer said, nothing says in memoriam like mathematics. <laughs> and here's the problem. There are some of us who will hear that and say, like the bobblehead doll. Oh, yeah, it's constitutional. Really? There's been a great series on TV. I don't watch a lot of TV, but I, I, I've enjoyed a series on the Roosevelt's on PBS this week. And I've TV I've watched it late at night. And, and so I was watching, it's about... Teddy Roosevelt and Franklin Roosevelt. Franklin Roosevelt was president during World War II, and, and leading up to World War II, America, as you can understand, would not want to get embroiled in a European conflict, but Roosevelt saw it coming. There was no way we could avoid it. He knew, he, he kind of understood where Hitler was and what he was trying to do, and Roosevelt knew that eventually we were going to get into a war. And right before we got bombed on Pearl Harbor, uh, Churchill had set up a meeting on a ship with Roosevelt, and, and, and they closed out the meeting with a service, uh, a religious service. And Churchill picked three hymns. He picked, Oh God, Our Help in Ages Past, Eternal Father Strong to Save, which is our naval hymn. And then he picked Onward Christian Soldiers. And the people who were there saw that Roosevelt was deeply moved when they sang Onward Christian Soldiers. And when Roosevelt left, he leaned over to his son and he said, We are Christian soldiers and we will go on. Now think about that. The most important leader of the first half of the 20th century who led our nation to the most, perhaps the seminal moment in American history, which is victory in World War II, did so as a Christian and did so thinking that America was doing God's work by overcoming the Nazis. I spoke a few moments ago about D-Day when we invaded Normandy. Did you know Roosevelt used to have what he called fireside chats? It was just radio broadcasts that he would, he would give to the entire nation. Uh, all during the day before D-Day, the news releases were coming out that America was about to do the most important, really thing, most important thing of World War II. We were going to storm the beaches in France and go into Europe and overcome the Nazis. Even though there had been news releases all day, do you know what Roosevelt did when he called together the American people in his fireside chat? He led the nation in a prayer from the Oval Office. He didn't ask a clergyman to do it. He didn't ask a clergyman to write it. It was a prayer Roosevelt wrote, a long prayer in which the President of the United States led us in a prayer as a nation that God would lead us. He began his prayer beseeching Almighty God and he closed it with thy will be done. Where did we get this crazy notion that God is unconstitutional? I thought, my soul, cut the cross off so it looks like a plus sign. 
What about all those crosses? If you ever watch Save Private Private Ryan, you notice that the opening shows all the crosses on the Normandy marking the graves of American soldiers. What do we do? Do we just cut off all those crosses that mark the graves of those who gave their lives so that we could live, so we turn them into plus signs? Do we take the stars of David and turn them into asterisks? What has happened to us is a culture that we've lost our courage and we cannot stand up for what's right anymore. These are days that call for courage, and yet the average Christian, I think, is like the bobble-headed doll. But then on the other hand, do you find what I find sometimes? That there are Christians who stand up for what's right, but they do it in such a hateful way that it's almost like we want to step back and say, oh, I'm not part of that. I mean, I guess you could say they're courageous, but they're not smart. And, and, and I, I'm with you. I mean, I, I understand. I mean, you know, when, when I hear something where somebody disrespects God, there's a part of me that rises up to that. But, you know, here's the thing. It doesn't do any good, anybody any good to be hateful. And what I love about Daniel is not only, look at this, not only do you know where the line is drawn, but number two, legends take their stand where they must, but they do it wisely. Now, here's the thing. Here's what you need to know. When Daniel told these guys, hey, we can't eat your steaks and drink your wine because it's dedicated to idols, Daniel didn't stand there and cross his arms and look at them with a scowl on his face and say, you bunch of pagans, we're not going to drink your liquor and we're not going to eat your steaks. He didn't do that. Look, 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 he got creative. Read with me. He said, please test us for 10 days on a diet of vegetables and water, Daniel said. And at the end of the 10 days, see how we look compared to the other young men who are eating the king's food. Then make your decision in line of what you see. Daniel, I love this. Daniel got creative. He didn't flip them off. He just said, hey, you know what? If you want us to be healthy, why don't you give us a diet of vegetables and water? Well, hey, we all know you're going to look better if you eat that kind of diet, right? But no, there's a miracle here, and, and, and we'll save that for another day. But Daniel said, and, and don't you love the wisdom of it? He, he just said, try this. May God help us as Christ followers to take our stand, but to do it in a loving, gracious, creative way. Because see, here's what I discover. I discover a lot of Christians will stand up for what's right, but they don't ever make a case for it. You know, they'll stand up for what's right sexually, but they won't make a case for it. They'll, they'll stand up for what's right in regard to God, but they'll never make a case. And so basically all they do is just throw it out there with hostility. And, and no wonder a lot of times Christians are ineffective at standing for what they believe. Well, this and I'm through. There's no getting away from the fact that it worked. I mean, but if it hadn't have worked, they, would have, they wouldn't have given, they wouldn't have backed down. They would have, they would have been willing to give their lives. But not only do legends know where the line is drawn, and not only do legends take their stand, but skillfully and carefully. But number three, legends take their stand, and then they leave things in God's hands. Daniel basically said, this is where we are. And like you'll see in week three, like Esther said, if I die, I die. This is where I am. And you leave it in God's hands. Guys, let me tell you something. We're talking today about doing what's right. Now, whether that's in the broader culture standing as a Christian or if it's just going home and doing the right thing in your family or in your marriage or where you work. But there's a time when you just do the right thing and you leave it in God's hands because your God is so big you can leave it in his hands. See, many of us are afraid to leave things in God's hands because we're not sure how much we believe in him. I mean, look at how this came out for Daniel, and we'll, we'll read this quickly. When the training period ordered by the king was completed, the chief of staff brought all the young men to King Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and no one impressed him as much as Daniel, Hananiah, 
Mishael Nazareth. So they entered the royal service, and whatever the king commanded them, or consulted them rather, in any matter requiring wisdom and balanced judgment, he found them ten times more capable than any of the magicians and enchanters in this entire kingdom. So they still brought their A game, even though they were working for a pagan king. That's good to think about. But then there's this verse, and I love Daniel uh, 121. Daniel remained in the royal service until the first year of the reign of King Cyrus. I don't know if that means anything to you, but Cyrus was a Persian. Basically, what God is saying is, just want you to know, Daniel outlasted Babylon. There is a time to do the right thing and leave it in God's hands. Now, I want to ask you a question today, and I might, I might accidentally insult you, and I promise you I don't mean to do that. Let me ask you a question. Do you believe in God? And you say, well, Mark, that's kind of insulting. We're here at New Spring. Listen, you should know I looked at a group of pastors, Americans and international pastors in a major conference this year, and I asked them the same question. I don't mean do you believe in God? Is he part of your theological repertoire? I mean, do you really believe in God? Do you believe there's a God who knows your name, knows the number of hairs on your head, knows what's inside your head, cares about you, watching you? Do you believe there's a God who's truly involved in your life? I mean, when I read scripture, there's a wonderful verse in the Old Testament. Listen to me, please, please listen, because I've talked about there being openings for legendary living. The Bible says in the Old Testament that the eyes of God are going back and forth through the world looking for people in whose lives he can show himself strong who are fully devoted to him. So in other words, God is just looking for people like, like Daniel, like Esther. He's looking for people who will trust him, who will do the right thing and leave things in his hands. See, here's the thing. I think a lot of us, even people among us who do believe in God, we tend to discount God's presence because we can't see him. Why do we bonus the visible and discount the invisible? I don't understand that. But we do. And especially when you consider what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4. Paul said the things that we can see are all going to disappear someday. It's what we can't see that's eternal. I can say that I see you, but I don't see you. I see the houses you live in. You are invisible. You're a spirit. You're going to leave that body I can see someday. You're not your body. If you're 25, you may want to be, but wait till you see what time and gravity do to it. I promise you not. <laughs> I, I, I've got non-theist friends, and they'll, and they'll say this to me. I don't see your God. And, and, and we have good talks, and, and, you know, they'll kid me about the flying spaghetti monster and all that kind of stuff. And, um, but, but I hear that. You know, I, I don't see your God. Man. It's, it's like the, so this is credit to the Russian cosmonauts. So the idea is we went into outer space and we didn't see God. Really, it was Khrushchev. He said that to the Politburo, the Presidium, or whatever they called their thing. But there's been this, this idea, I don't see God, so therefore he doesn't exist. In other words, God is there if I can see him. He's not there if I can't see him. And I think to some degree that gets into the groundwater of you and me. I have agnostic friends who will modify that a little bit. They'll say, well, if I ever see him, then I'll believe. You know, and I'm out of time today, but here's the thing. You could walk into this worship center at New Spring and you could say... I looked all around today. I don't see the architect of New Spring. I don't, I don't think they had. I don't think, there's no, there is no, there's no architect here. Or you could walk into New Spring's worship center today, look around and say, I don't see the builder here, so I assume New Spring has no builder. No, I'll tell you something. There was an architect and there was a builder. I know. I know their names. I was there. 
I saw buildings architect built before we ever talked about building this building. I was there the first meeting we had with the architect. I can tell you all kinds of stories about the architect. Builder, I know, I know who the builder is. Had all kinds of meetings with the builder. I mean, there was one time when we let it out for bids, this, this project, and we had five potential builders, and we ranked them in, uh, according to quality from low to high. And we figured that when the bids came in, that the highest, the best builder was going to have the highest cost, and the worst builder would have the lowest cost. And we figured we'd settle somewhere in the middle. One of the coolest things ever happened in the history of New Spring. The builder we had ranked at the top came in with the low bid. Easiest decision we ever made. <laughs> I could tell you all kinds of stories about the building. Let me tell you what else I could do. I mean, I won't live forever, I won't last forever. I could write a book about the architect and the builder, and I could leave it here for you, and it'd be authoritative. And for anybody to read that book and not believe it, it'd be intellectually dishonest, because I was there, I was part of it, I left the book. If you read the book, you'd be accountable to believe it. Or even so, I could stand before you like I am today. I was there, I was a player, I was part of it. I knew the architect, knew the builder, I knew all about them. And, and you'd be accountable to believe me, because I was there. It'd be, dis it'd be intellectually dishonest to disbelieve me. But if I'd never written a book, and if I didn't stand before you and tell you about the architect and the builder, please don't, I don't, don't let me offend you, but let me tell you the truth. You would still be accountable. If I never wrote a book, if I never told you what I just told you, you would still be accountable to believe in an architect because there is architecture here. You would be accountable, accountable, personally accountable. And you could not say, because I did not see the architect, I don't believe in an architect. You would be accountable because you see architecture here. And if I never wrote a book or told you about the builder, you would be accountable to believe that there is a builder because there is a building here. And ladies and gentlemen, when you look at this world, you may not see the God who made it, but there is architecture and there is building. And we are accountable to believe in him. Those of us who grew up in church, those of us who've never had religious experiences, we are accountable to believe. And the good news is, he is a God who loves us very much, who cares about us. And if you will stand with him, he will stand with you. This book, this series is going to teach us that if you have the courage to face an extreme situation with extreme courage and leave it all to him, he will show up big time in your life and my life. I am so into overtime, I'm scared to go to staff meeting this week, but I can't leave without giving you a chance to put your life in his hands. You know, you could say, Mark, how can I know for sure that I'm okay? How can I know for sure I'm going to heaven? Hey, listen, it's not a church. It's not in being a religious person. It's not into, hey, listen, my good works, I, it wouldn't even get me home to Andover. I promise you. The only way to get into heaven is through what God did for you when he put his son Jesus into our world. And he lay on a Roman cross and took the nails in his hands and feet and thorns in his head. And the way God looked at it, he paid for everything you ever did wrong. And whatever we'll do in the future. And he gives this righteousness to us. You know, I've told you this story many times. Every once in a while I'm in a restaurant and I'll, the server will come by and I'll keep expecting the server to come by with a check. And the server will just come by and say, I just want to let you know somebody was here. I just want to take care of your meal. Well, you know what? I can't pay for it. Somebody else has already paid. I can sit there and wonder what to do all evening long. Or I can say, accept the gift that's been given to me. And that's what God is trying to say to you. See, here's the thing. You and I, how many of us are trying to pay for our sins? We're guilting ourselves into misery. We're trying to pay the check. And God comes along in his word and says, somebody's already paid your bill. My son came. 
before you were ever born and hung on a cross and you paid your check. And there's only one thing to do and that's to receive it and go live for him, right? And so here's the thing. And if you want to have that relationship, God has told us all you got to do is ask. Romans 10, 13, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Let me pray a prayer with you. And this is a prayer that asks. It just makes the ask. I'll pray it slowly. The important thing is not that you say the words. The important thing is that you own the truths, okay? So I'm praying it slowly so that you can think about it and decide if you want to tell God this. Dear God, I'm a sinner. I'm broken. I can't fix myself. But I believe you love me. I believe you love me anyway. I believe Jesus died to pay for my sins. And I believe he arose from the grave. I ask you to forgive me. Come into my life. Change me. Help me to live for you. In Jesus' name.